Today's guest on the podcast is Emily Ann Peterson. She's a songwriter, a podcast host, and the author of the book, Bare Naked Bravery, How to Be Creatively Courageous. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Emily Ann. She has an amazing story of bravery and overcoming some pretty big obstacles in her life. What I really enjoyed the most at the end, when I asked the magic question that you guys know from the podcast, she really gave me a little dose of something that I think is going to change my life forever. And I don't mean that in a light way. I really, for those of you who are creative and you like to write, I would definitely hang on to this episode to get her little smidge of advice toward the end. So I hope you all enjoy this episode with Emily Ann Peterson. Welcome to the same 24 hours podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day. And it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Emily Ann Peterson. Hi, Emily. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, do you go by Emily or are you Emily Ann, like a good Southern girl? <laughs> uh, Emily Ann, like a good you Southern are. girl. Yeah. That's awesome. So Emily Ann is here with us. Yeah. I have a daughter, Stella Ray, and we say, you know, we're just grooming her to be a country singer. <laughs> That's so amazing. No, I Ann is a family name, so I have Anns on both sides of my family, actually, and then my southern side of the family uses Anne in the first name also. So Emily Ann. Yeah. Very nice, Emily Ann. So (laughs) tell me, and you're a songwriter, so this is perfect. I'm just going to connect Stella Ray to you and you guys can go off and (laughs) do your songwriting. Would love it. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about music and, and its influence in your life and kind of bring us up to speed as to where you are today. Sure. I, I, um, today I'm a singer songwriter. One of the things that I've noticed is that songwriters have this uncanny ability to take really complicated subjects and boil them down to like three to five minutes. (laughs) And, um, that is a skill that a lot of people who have really big dreams and who have creative visions, um, that's a skill that they need. And so that's one of the things that I teach in addition to writing songs for my own fans and audience, that kind of thing. Um, and I came across like the song, this songwriting teaching side of things because I, um, five years ago was diagnosed with a hand tremor in my right hand And at the time I was a full-time cello teacher. So I was teaching little kids ages four all the way up to adults 74 and plus, you know, Um, and I loved it. And my entire life was surrounded by this, like circled around this instrument. Um, And I had been playing the cello for like 20 years at the time about. Um, And so I I knew what I was doing with that instrument. And the day that I, I was kind of in denial for several months about the fact that I had this tremor in my right hand. But the day that I heard the tremor through my cello was the day I called my doctor because I knew that if after playing this instrument for 20 years, I couldn't control my hand, that something was wrong. 
um, just because I had so much expertise in utilizing my hands in that way. And so one day they didn't work like they used to. And it, and because I had like my rent was being paid by this instrument, (laughs) all of my friends were because I had an experience with this instrument. Um, my entire career was based around it. So there is so much writing on this instrument. And I didn't know at the time, I didn't know at the time that I had basically built this like house of cards essentially, you know, um, because my hand was steady. I didn't like, that wasn't a thing that even crossed my mind as like needing to create like contingency plans for just what happens if, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, the, I was diagnosed with this essential tremor in my right hand and it's degenerative and it's neurological and it's hereditary. So that meant that the doctor basically said, okay, well you have this thing, it's from your family <laughs> and it's going to get worse and we don't know how bad it's going to get and we don't know how fast it's going to get bad. So it became this massive question mark in my life. And I knew at that time, because my rent was dependent on everything, I knew like, oh gosh, like it is not a wise thing for me to continue to put all of my eggs in this one basket that has this massive hole in it. Right. <laughs> um, it was just not a smart thing to continue going for it. And, you know, like that sounds like all clean and crisp and like really loud, logical sound decision-making. But at the same time during that season, I was going through like a massive identity crisis. Um, so how be- long um, from the first, I guess, from the doctor's visit, I mean, how, walk us through sure. the steps emotionally. You know, when you get any sort of news like this, you go through stages of grief, really. Oh, um, yeah. How, I how mean, how long of a period of time you know, who, did you get angry? Like what happened right after you found out? Right. Um, so first of all, the stages of grief are not linear. It's more like a roller coaster, mm-hmm. um, or like a series of, you know, running around the baseball bat, baseball home bases and just in circles going like <laughs> denial, anger, <laughs> like <laughs> over and over and over. <laughs> so it's more like a corkscrew than it is like a, simple, clean, ah, now I have arrived and now I will go forward. So, um, and it also takes a long time. So I, it, you know, the stages of grieving my identity in that respect took for like, I would say a several years and still to this day, I still have twinges of, you know, like I'll like reach for a lamp next to my bedside and my hand will shake and that'll be like the last image I see before the lights go out at night. And that has been kind of like a real, like, um, I, I have to kind of prepare myself for, to see that image before I go to sleep because then your eyes are closed and you're wondering about that's, that's the, those are the moments where you're pondering the meaning of life. Right. right. And, <laughs> and you don't want the last thing you've just seen. Yeah before you ponder the meaning of life to be, Oh, your body's broken. (laughs) Right. Um, and so those were some really like really big issues that I was struggling with during that season. 
Um, but now right after I was this, so how long ago? That was this? about five years ago, okay. five ish, okay. five six ish years, years ago. And so, um, yeah, right after the diagnosis, you know, the doctor at the time, I don't think he really understood. He knew that I was a musician. Um, but there's all sorts of things I have to say about like how to deliver bad news in good ways. Um, but he, he did an okay job. And one of the things he told me like our second and third time, maybe I think it was our third time together. Um, he was basically writing a new prescription for a second medication because the first one made me feel really funky. Um, and he was writing this prescription and, you know, saying, giving me, you know, saying like, okay, well, if this one doesn't work, we have one more option. We have a third option. Um, and I remember asking him, like taking a deep breath and then asking him, so this isn't going to go away, is it? And he put down his pen and looked up at me and took a big deep breath and said, no, it's not. And that was one of those really big moments where it was one of those thud moments where you feel your stomach like just thud into the ground like okay wow this is uh, this is gonna suck bad yeah. <laughs> um and and he was very sweet about it you know he basically said you know listen you this is like such a I knew from researching this stuff because he diagnosed me and then like sent me on my merry way to go look at Dr. Google. <laughs> exactly. To go like Google everything. Oh. And so I knew things like, you know, the ultimate symptom fixer, like if nothing works, the ultimate symptom fixer is brain surgery where they like install a battery pack in your chest and then like basically do the equivalent of docking the space station in your brain with like a little tiny electrical node. Um, and so I was doing all some, this kind of research that is really amazing. They're doing wonderful things, but it's also a, um, essential tremors are a very common thing and it rarely affects someone's livelihood like it did mine. Right. And because, because I mean, even if someone who works with their hands, like say a, a hairstylist or, I mean, that wouldn't impact as great as it would for you a hairstylist it would because you would sharp objects so oh, you might oh yeah own finger <laughs> better than that that's funny okay no no to the scissors okay so but but in general like if you're if it all it does is affect your handwriting then that's not a big deal you know what I mean so um and because of that fact there's not a lot of money that goes into researching right curing this and so um, and because it's really common and it just doesn't affect your life that much that th there's just not a lot of like attention that's given to it, um, in its worst forms, like in its most advanced forms, it looks kind of like Parkinson's. So your head will shake and sometimes it'll affect your voice and it'll spread to other body parts and that kind of thing. So, um, there are these like spoons that use gyroscopes inside the spoon handle that'll help you like keep your spoon handle steady so you can actually feed yourself there's that so it can get that advanced um and we don't know again right now mine is really just greatly affected by caffeine so if i drink caffeine it's 
really hard to function with some of my musical endeavors. Um, so if I'm in a musical season of life, the biggest symptom fixer for me right now has been minimize stress, like keep it to a absolute bare minimum and then, um, also reduce the amount of caffeine that I have. So, uh, because the other options that exist are take these other medications, like a heart medication or an anti-seizure medication or, um, a really intense migraine medication. And they've just noticed that symptoms of those medications also fix right. tremor. Right. So you're the other, you know, other than managing your own stress, the options that I've seen have been these really intense medications. And at, at this point in my advancement of this disease, I don't have like the, the symptoms are not that bad, so bad that I would need to take these really intense medications. So right now the, the managing stress and not eating caffeine and just keeping, keeping a more Zen life has been really, um, the best solution. But in the midst of having been diagnosed with this thing, stress was at an all time high. Right. And I want to so, ask you, like, how does one keep a Zen life? I feel like we need to have a part two to this podcast because totally <laughs> self man, I mean, management of stress. Hello. How do you do that? How do you right. really do that? Right. Well, it took a long time and there was, um, and I think a lot of it for me, at, at least with this, this part of what I was doing was, um, letting my, giving myself space to grieve, um, and not trying to like, like changing my expectations mm -hmm. and also changing the expectations other people had on me. So that meant you know, at the time I had all these students that I was teaching, well, I basically had to say, Hey, I'm raising my rates because, um, my hours of my availability for teaching with my real, like my real muscular availability is a lot less than it used to be. And so my hours have, my rates had to increase to compensate for that. Um, and so that naturally like weeded out some students who couldn't afford higher rates, that kind of thing. Um, so that was kind of like managing those expectations to say, listen, if you want to take lessons with me, I really only have four hours in the day. I don't have eight hours like I used to. I have four hours available and of good muscle strength that, you know, um, because your body naturally has these stabilizing muscles. So even if your neurology is a little bit mucked up, you have these stabilizing muscles that can compensate, mm -hmm. but the more exhausted those stabilizing muscles get, the more the tremor appears for me. Right. So, um, yeah, it's been, you know, it was learning things like don't lug your 50 pound keyboard down three blocks to go to your, play a house concert right away. <laughs> <laughs> Because like my hand and my body needed like an hour to recoup from doing that big physical activity um, because to hold something that big for that long of a period of time, that those were all of my stabilizing muscles. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> so then I started the concert and then what because it's neurological and stress induced, I saw that I 
had a limited capacity in my hand. So then I was like getting in my own head. And the more I played a song, the worse it got. And then, so it's just song after song. And it was just like watching somebody stumble and pick themselves up and stumble and then finally cross the finish line during the last song. And I was so mortified (laughs) because I came, you know, drove so long to go play this house concert and be with people who I loved and people who'd never seen me before. And so I'm making this first impression that was just not the first impression I wanted to make. Um, So there are moments like that where I'm realizing, okay, well, if I do one simple thing, like set up an hour before the concert that gives my arms some strength and then my brain has enough space to not be so stressed out and not have, not have that downward spiral happen (laughs) on stage in front of everyone. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So nervous. Like my hands are sweating just thinking about that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's, um, and I've had to learn things like, um, let's see, like a couple months ago, I had a really intense performance that I was, I had been commissioned to write a song for, um, that was inspired by a book, uh, Lindsay, Lindy West's book shrill, which I think is going to become a TV show soon. Um, so I was commissioned to write this song based on her book. She's a hero of mine. Um, she's an amazing writer and lo and behold, she was there right in the front row of that performance. And so I'm playing a song that I don't even know yet was good (laughs) Um, for the first time to a crowd of people. And it's just, so there's just really high stakes. Right. And there's a lot at risk. Um, And that took some extra, I was really glad to have had all of the experience of like, okay, center yourself, do belly breathing. Um, don't talk to other people. Cause that always got me off my game to talk with, to other people be backstage. Right. Um, but so I just had to really get super centered inside of myself and then get up on stage. And Oh my God. One of the other things was that I was playing with musicians. Musicians were backing me up who I had never played with before. So there were so many variables that were really brand new that I didn't have control over that I normally do have control over. And so I really had to get um, lean on the consistency that I knew I had control over. Yeah, that's so, terrifying. Am I? Yeah, I am not musical. I took all I, I'm actually tone deaf. I mean, I, I don't even know if that's a real thing, but I can't hear tone, which is <laughs> tragic because I play I bet you I bet you anything that you probably can but (laughs) like musicality is a learned skill and you know a lot of people say that they are you know I'm not creative or I'm not musical but that usually just means like I haven't um you haven't like nurtured that in you it's like it's like a muscle you've never (laughs) built before but I did though that's the thing so I I took piano from a very young age I played the trumpet through high school um and it just and I did fine I did fine I mean I was like first or second chair all through the trumpet years but I remember distinctly going to this honors band tryout and I choked on the scales uh, on the tryout and I just made up the scales (laughs) 
nice. <laughs> and because what else do you do? And so when you're talking about the performance with a musical instrument, I'm sitting over here sweating because I'm having this flashback to that stupid honors band tryout because it's so horrifying. It's, it's I don't know. There's something about the music, you know, quote unquote failure that is just yeah. awful. Well, you know, there are a lot of... Uh, there is so much like in the personal growth, mental health realm of things, there is so much, um, that can be traced back to a, like a kindergarten teacher telling a kid that rainbows aren't that color or that like, you know, dinosaurs are always green, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, or like a muse, a piano teacher who is just like really abusive to, to six year olds, like, um, emotionally abusive and uh, unintentionally, of course, yeah. you know? Um, and so there's a lot that can be traced back to those moments where you were being brave in those very small moments, you were being brave. And then be based on whatever environment you were in or whatever the demands of that situation was, you faced rejection and were not skilled enough in how to handle that rejection. And, um, then you create this big, massive wall. That's like, I will never play this again, or I will yeah. never like dinosaurs are always green. <laughs> like, so <laughs> you create, so. yeah, so. and it's totally natural. It's totally natural. So, but I really um, can't sing. Okay. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll let you say that for really? now. Cause I haven't heard you sing. <laughs> it's bad. It's very bad. Very bad, bad, bad. So bravery is is kind of your thing, right? This is what yeah. you've, you've pulled out of this whole experience. So talk about bravery and, and, yeah. and how you found it well, and how it's transcended. And now you've got a book about bravery. Right. Super random, right? For a songwriter to write a book about bravery is kind of off the wall. But what happened after I got diagnosed was that I, I had, you know, um, my own, grieving of this identity, um, required me to get some space and time away from things. I was, I had previously been awarded an artist residency to go spend six six weeks out in the mountains of Washington and it was beautiful. Um, I was able to, fortunately I did, you know, this, I had applied for this residency to write and record new music for the cello. And fortunately the organization that was hosting me allowed me to not play the cello at all during that week and in th those weeks and instead just kind of what I call creatively sulk. <laughs> um, they were like, yeah, as long as you're just doing something creative and something musical, we're fine. <laughs> you're like, I'm um, going to sulk. Thanks so much. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to write some sad, sassy pop songs <laughs> instead of writing new compositions for this instrument so that I have years of experience in. So I, I basically – noodled around on a piano keyboard and guitar and decide and just came out of the time in the mountains with this like handful of songs that I was pretty, I wasn't like, these are the best songs ever, but I knew enough about songwriting and I knew enough about music to know that they were good enough for me to keep going. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> you're like, there's bits and pieces here. There's some stuff. Yeah, I was like, I was like, these aren't, these aren't going to get me a Grammy, but this isn't like, these are worthy enough for me to keep trying and keep writing and keep going. Um, and I, 
through that process, I realized, oh, I'm not just a cellist. I'm not just this one dimensional person. I am an, I'm a songwriter too. And more than that, I'm an artist and I'm an artist that has something to say. Now, what that thing is, I didn't know yet, but I just had that internal like gut level feeling of saying of I have something to say and I'm going to have to say it. And when I realized those two things, I have something to say and I'm going to have to say it, it hit me that I was going to need to be brave in order to do that. And I had no clue what bravery was. I mean, I knew I had heard it before, of course. You hear about <laughs> it all Disney the time. Movie or is it Pixar? Oh my gosh. This thing. <laughs> there's to- there's, all of them are about bravery. <laughs> They're all about bravery. Um, but you see it in these, you're able to pinpoint it in these really um, um, extreme examples of like a, someone running into a burning building to save someone else. That's brave, you know, but where does it come from? Where does somebody get the impulse to be brave? How does one be brave? Are there ingredients in bravery? Like, oh, how do you build that? Is it a muscle or is it just born in you? You know, those, right. those are, were the questions I was asking. And everything that I read about fear and courage and everything was not as, um, like it made sense to me, but it didn't, it didn't hit home. You know, it didn't, it wasn't the like analytical, like here are the three ways that you, you know, (laughs) pour, pour these three things in a bowl and you, you got it. So that's what I was looking for. Um, and I did a bunch of, bunch more research after reading, um, that research, uh, was conversations with people who I thought were brave and then people who they thought were brave and then people who they thought were brave. Um, and all those conversations became a podcast, um, called bare naked bravery. So you can go back and listen to all of my research conversations. And it's interesting if you listen from episode one, all the way up to, you know, like before the book was published, you can hear me, starting to see these themes and these common threads through everyone's story. Like, oh, they all had vulnerability. Oh, they all were able to improvise given their situation. Oh, they were all able to imagine something better than the current reality that they were in. Um, And so what came from those conversations was this book that I wrote. So, um, And I actually, you know, when I first started the podcast portion of things, I was thinking, oh, great, this is going to make it really easy to like turn these people's stories into like a basically a crowdsourced book. Um, But as I was pulling everything together, I realized, oh, wow, if I'm really going to write a book about bravery, I need to just use myself as an example, (laughs) not because I'm the most bravest thing out there, but because as an act of bravery myself. Um, oh, so, so you that, think you were kind of deflecting a little bit? No, no, no. I just chose to okay. write the book in that method. I chose to, um, I mean, possibly originally in trying to crowdsource things, maybe I was trying to deflect, but to it, it just... focus off yourself. Because you said something before we, we started recording that you, you've taught a masterclass on how to... Um, yeah. To... to not well, to be comfortable with self-promotion. And that's a form of, I guess, quote, self-promotion to write about yourself, which is exactly. hard to do. 
Well, and we do self-promotion all the time. I mean, when you're talking with a friend and you don't accept her compliment on how cute your dress is, that's like a form of deflecting that promotion, deflecting mm-hmm. that, um, that compliment. So, um, yeah, I do uh, what I've really, what I've realized after, you know, kind of going through this grieving process and this identity reconstruction is that I've always been a teacher. Um, and that the things I was teaching my cello students are the same things that I teach today with bravery. Um, it's still creative expression. It's still let, you know, it's still the idea of how do I, um, utilize the, the situation at hand or the instruments and the tools that I have and how do I use them to say what I want to say, to make sound that is beautiful, to make art that is beautiful, to connect with people and make beautiful connections. So it's basically the same stuff. Right. <laughs> it's just not in sonic form. It's now in a different, you know, relational um psychological format. So um yeah, I teach these free monthly master classes on various topics. Every month is a little bit different. Um, and one of the topics we've taught, I've taught recently is overcoming self-promotion anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the title of the book, Bare Naked Bravery, How to Be Creatively Courageous. That's awesome. So let's talk about bare naked. Why is bravery bare naked? And then what is creative courage? Sure. Uh, so I am naked on the cover of my book (laughs) and everyone goes straight to Amazon. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I am naked. Um, and I picked that cover because I'm actually holding my hands in front of my chest. So I look very closed off even though I'm naked. Um, and I chose that pose. There are a couple different options for book covers, but I chose that, that specific cover because, you can be very vulnerable when you're being brave, but there still is a demand for boundaries. And, you know, um, sometimes you can utilize those boundaries and those restrictions and constraints and limitations to accomplish something really, really great. And that's that has to do with the creative courage aspect. How can you creatively accomplish these really epic things that you're trying to do? Maybe it's as simple as <laughs> tell your mother-in-law to stop calling you so much, you know, <laughs> um, or maybe it's as, you know, big of a feat as, you know, going through the divorce that is inevitable. So it, those, those moments in life, whether they're really tiny or really big, um, they all require the same kind of creativity. And so that's, that's one of the, the big the big theme of the book is that that yeah, I love it. I love it. it. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, we all go through really cruddy situations, um, all of us. And that was one of the things that I that was a little bit of like when I was going through my diagnosis, I kind of wanted to be this special snowflake that was going through this like miserable time. And although in the moment it didn't feel that great. Um, acknowledging that other people were going through awful times, that was actually really healing for me to go, oh, 
I'm not the only one who's gone through a really cruddy time in life. And <laughs> these, oh, and these other people have gone through it and have come out the other end. And, whoa, look at what they're doing. And this is so great. And that's cool. And then you're not focused on how awful it feels. You're focused on how your life could change and how you've opened up your possibilities, basically. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your book covers one of my favorite topics that I'm still digging through, but the amazing thing of self-sabotage. And you you mentioned before we went on um, about your your past with an eating disorder. And I kind of want to talk about self-sabotage and eating disorder because I know I just think that's such a great topic to discuss. So, um, I mean, do you think they're tied? Is self-sabotage an eating I mean, it could be, it could be everybody's different. You know, everybody yeah. goes through an eating disorder for different reasons. Um, I know that my, o- mine was a manifestation of OCD and a inability to control my surroundings. So not, not so ironically, um, during the diagnosis and the grieving process, there were moments where I caught my OCD coming back, but because I had been through eating disorder recovery, my OCD was showing up in different, it was showing up in different forms. So like there was one day where I was late for something and I was leaving the house really urgently. And I saw really quick that the hooks that were holding all the dishwasher, the dish, the dish towels were all crooked. And so I spent like three minutes fixing those hooks, even though I was late and like all these other things. And I was, and it came, I kind of came to after three minutes after like all the hooks were straight again, I realized, oh my gosh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Because I had gone through all of the, the, you know, the self work, the, the work on myself. Um, it was very clear to me that it was like, oh, of course you're, of course you need to straighten dish hooks. Nothing in your life is straight and orderly. Go ahead. Take extra three minutes. Make sure the dish hooks are straight. It's not going to kill anybody. Like <laughs> You're not hurting anyone by straightening these dish hooks. This is a safe way for this to happen, you know? Um, and it's, it, you know, I am smiling and laughing about it because it's just kind of, I think it's a little bit silly. But I also understand in a very real way, how necessary that was for me to like create a safe place for that kind of expression. Um, even if it was a little bit, um, out of the box. (laughs) So, I mean, to answer your question about the eating disorder stuff, one of the reasons why I was able to kind of take this diagnosis in such a great stride, um, was because I had already gone through an eating disorder recovery process and like years of therapy. And so how old were you when you started the recovery process? Mm-hmm. Um, the height of my eating disorder was in, you know, senior year in high school and first year of college. And then I started the recovery process um, after uh, so this is sophomore year of college was when I started, um, the recovery and I had sworn off 
I had sworn off. La- I don't know how de- detailed you want to yeah, get into Yeah, I want to get thing. into this okay. because I okay, am okay. Like so into this right now. I'm happy <laughs> to do it, but I just also know that for some people who are in the midst of eating disorder recovery, sometimes this uh, this, this can okay. be so turn like, it off. Do we can be, to turn it off? Well, it can be pretty triggering. So, but I have a point. So if you hang tight, you might okay. hear something good. So <laughs> okay. Um, so you've been you've had your warning. There's your warning. You can turn it off. Yep. 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 Okay. Okay. Good. So, um, so I had my sophomore year of college, I had sworn off laxatives because I, I, one of my methods of acting out with this eating disorder was abusing laxatives in a pretty extreme way. Um, and so I had sworn off laxatives cause I knew I was like, okay, it's, we're getting really hard to like control my bowels because I've been abusing these laxatives. And so it's going to get embarrassing one of these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's give ourselves a break. Don't do it anymore. Um, let's figure out a different way. So this, this was my internal talk, right? Right. And then one day I was walking up the stairs to my apartment and I kind of came to again, um, like, Sometimes when you get in the car and you're driving home, you kind of go on autopilot. You know how that goes. But I did that only I was coming home from something. I didn't remember leaving the house to go do anything. And I looked down at my hand and there's a box of laxatives and a receipt from Walgreens or CVS or whatever. And normally like in the, you know, in my creation of illusions of everything is all right, I would like go to the grocery, I would go get laxatives and then purchase other things Mm -hmm. to like make it not so obvious that I, you know, kind of like we do with like feminine products, right? (laughs) (laughs) You go get cereal milk and then everything else as well. Right. Um, although for me these days it's, (laughs) it's also all the, um, all the like comfort foods and like, you know, like facial masks and here's my salad, my tomatoes and the ice cream right behind it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, which I actually think is really fine. Just so we're all clear. Um, the, so yeah, I came to and had this box of laxatives in my hand and based on the receipt, the laxatives were the only thing I purchased. (laughs) And I knew then that if I had a blacked out and gone to the store to go get laxatives and B didn't hide the fact that I was just buying laxatives, that something was really out of control, that that even I was out of control, Right. (laughs) you know? Um, and I broke down in the stairwell of this apartment and just cried like really big tears. Um, and that was the big, that was the first like, okay, I can see that I don't have any control over this anymore. that this is something that I need outside help with, that I cannot do this on my own and I have no idea what to do next and like just weeping in the stairwell. Um, and you know, in, in the book, I think it's like second or it might be the third chapter of the book where I talk about this moment where, you know, I do think that we have fairy godmothers and I know it sounds a little bit hokey, but I do think that they show up, but they don't wear tiaras and fluffy pink dresses. They are, they are, and in my case, in that moment, it was my friend who was in, ironically, my, uh, 
food nutrition class in college. And she and I had confessed to each other previously that we both had, you know, struggles with eating disorders. And because she was the only person in my life at the time who knew, really knew what was going on with this struggle, mm-hmm. um, even though she was in it herself, like she was, you know, right there with me. <laughs> right. Um, and I called her and and just was crying, just, just didn't even say words. Um, but it was one of those phone calls where she just answered the phone. Hello, I'm coming over right now. Yeah. (laughs) And she stayed on the phone while I was crying. She came over. She basically like, you know, like brushed my back while, while I fell asleep. Um, and I do remember that we ended up calling the, the school, uh, psychiatrist, uh, school doctors, uh, clinic that they had. Um, and then the next day I had that an appointment, like an emergency appointment with that doctor who another fairy godmother, she wearing clogs and a white coat. Um, she j- just looked at me and said, well, you have an eating disorder. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, all of us were like, yep, yeah. no duh. <laughs> what do we do now? And she just looked at me. She goes, it doesn't have, life doesn't have to be this way just straightened the eyes and said, life does not have to be lived like this and we are going to help you and let's get you some help right now. And she set me up with like a nutritionist. Um, and then the, also the, uh, you know, counselor, uh, therapist. Um, and I actually ended up having to shop around for some therapists. It took a couple years to find a therapist that was really good, but I also think that it was, I don't think I was ready yet to do the the hardest emotional work. Right. Um, and so I, I do recommend getting therapy is phenomenal. It's amazing. But only if you have a therapist that works really well with you, mm-hmm. similar to music and music teachers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell I have a lot of bad experiences with therapists and music teachers? But you know um, what I really think is interesting about your, your story and your breakdown? I, I don't want to say breakdown, but can we call it a breakdown? Oh, sure. For the Please. Yeah. Of convenience. Of course. Um, I, I had a similar situation where I just, you know, hit the point and mine was with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, where I just woke up one morning and realized like I was always the, the mom and the wife who was getting it all done, despite the fact that I was completely drunk the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, I managed to show up to my life every day until the one day I didn't. And, you know, I didn't know how the kids got to school and I didn't care. Um, but I had that moment where I just broke down and where you had your friend who knew your secrets. I had my friend who knew my secrets too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a great, important thing thing to point out like if you are struggling to have someone that knows your truth because I think that's where people get lost when we do have those moments of breaking down or just to have the community that you know is available Mm -hmm. that there are people out there you know like you like like Emily Ann like Meredith (laughs) who have been somewhere and and to know that there's someone because I think a lot of times people just think they're the only ones like you mentioned before they were the snowflake (laughs) yep yep yeah and i so the book is broken up into three 
parts. The first part is kind of my story and some basics on bravery. Like there's three forms of bravery. There's three reasons why people are brave. The second section are these 12 ingredients of bravery that kept coming up in my research. And then the third section are these um, bravery building tools. And my favorite, and I think the most powerful bravery building tool is connection. Um, especially in relation to addiction and recovery process, connection is a massive antidote. Uh, and you know, it, you don't have to reach out and connect with someone who, you know, like me, there are, a millions of support groups online um, who filled with people who know what it's like to go through what you're going through. Um, and I would say that before you reach out and connect to someone, um, if you have this presence of mind, we don't always have this presence of mind when we're in the midst of some of these breakdown moments, but it's like I had a safe person, right? Um, if you don't feel like the people near you are safe to reach out to, then I urge you to find a safe person, maybe even a safe stranger, um, which is why those support support groups online or in person are really powerful tools for going through these seasons of bravery where we have to face ourselves and face yeah. our own brokenness. Um, it's if if I did not have that kind of connection, I I know for a fact I would not be alive. And I, and if I did not have that, have a, an outlet of expression, um, in my case, it was music. Um, and in other people's cases, it's like writing or, um, visual art, that kind of thing, or exercising. Those are all outlets of expression. And, um, I would say if you lean on your connection and you lean on your creative expression, you're going to be okay. It's going to suck for a while, but you're going to be okay. Um, and, um, and getting help like professional help is uh, invaluable. I would have invaluable. Wonderful. Yeah. So Emily Ann, I have one more question for you. Um, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, which means that we all are given the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do with those 24 hours that leads to our greater health, happiness, and success. So what is something that you do on a daily basis that you think allows you to move forward and to live your best life possible? Well, I do that creative expression. Um, it looks different every day, but most days I do this thing called I, um, impermanent writing. Um, it's kind of like if anybody's done Julia Cameron's The Morning, uh, The Artist's Way, she does the morning pages and this kind right, of things. Right. So it's kind of like, it's like morning pages on steroids, basically. Um, <laughs> I do stream of consciousness writing for a set period of time. Like I set my timer and then, um, I cr like curiously observe what's coming out of my head, basically. Um, no judgment to anything that comes out. Incomplete sentences, bad grammar, like really mean thoughts, whatever it is, like just no, absolutely no judgment. And then at the end of 15 minutes or at the end of, you know, when the timer buzzes, I delete all of it. Oh, wow. Do you really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That horrifies me as a writer. 
It's he might so later. It's so refreshing, Meredith. I really, I could yeah. do it. I would well, put I mean, it in like a password protected file for later. <laughs> well, I mean, that's one thing you could do. However, I have seen that it's um, the deleting of the writing has been such a gift uh, because it it permits me to have the same space to write whatever else is going to come up um, Mm -hmm. when it does, right? So like tomorrow or in two hours when I need again, um, the same exact fresh clean slate is there and waiting for me. And I don't have to worry about, oh, you know, is, is somebody going to find these later and then turn this awful writing into a book, you know, like, um, or I really don't want that person to know that I think that way about them, you know, like right. those kinds oh, of things are happening. So, um, deleting the writing, you know, even though, and here's what I've, you know, if you're a writer, here's what I've noticed about the stuff that comes up, the really important stuff, um, like even if I'm writing really wonderful, beautiful prose or whatever, that is, I can recreate that because if I'm truly in it, I'm trying to produce something to be consumed. I can recreate something that's really good. Um, so if it's worth keeping, I'll be able to find it again, basically, is what I that's have really discovered. Good. Well, I had told my husband a couple months ago, because when I was a kid, I used to journal all the time, and then I had really overprotective parents who I know, like, rifled my room when I was gone. And so I used to start journals, and then I would throw them away, because I was scared they would be found. And then even as an adult, I've journaled my whole life, and I have no remnants of any of them. So, in a sense, I've been doing that deleting writing for, like, my, my yeah. whole life. But not on purpose, you know? I, I would challenge you. I'm curious. I, w- I would challenge you to try it. Just, like, try it for a week. I'm going to do it. Do and I have then, to, how long? Ten minutes? Can I do five minutes? I, I, yeah, I mean, however long you need to. But I usually do it from, like, 15 to 20 minutes is usually okay. what I find. And do you type it or handwrite? Um, well, I ha- I type it because of my hand. Um, it's, it, okay. I'm, again, trying to re- reserve my st- stabilizing muscles. Um, but I also recommend handwriting as well. So whatever is – whatever feels the most fluent, yeah. Um, yeah. So And then you just get rid of it afterwards. You know, I have done a ton of interviews, and – this is this one wild me because everyone pretty much tells me to meditate and I go no I need to do that this one like blows me away for some reason I guess because I'm in the middle of I'm in the middle of book writing right now and I wake mm-hmm. up between three thirty and four every morning to to write for three and a half hours before the kids get up it's the only time it's precious so it, it, I feel like every word that comes out is so valuable <laughs> and I don't mean that in a you know egotistical sense I mean from a, just a time management and so to, right. to think about writing for myself just to throw it away mm-hmm. that's really intriguing I think I need to do that I, I recommend it um and it's you can also do like if, if you're with a with kids you can do it with mm. your kids present like you you can do it on your phone too like you can right. write you can write on your notes in your phone and then like when the time is up just delete the note file um and you, so it, it, it can be done anywhere you don't have to like ha- do this big whole thing and light a candle and do the whole thing. <laughs> you can if you want to. I mean, I've definitely done that. But I also have had moments where I'm like, um, like in the car 
after something. Yeah. And I realize, oh my gosh, I have to like, uh, you know, like I, I, in, for me, I get like, like a tingly feeling in my arms and I kind of get that like jittery, like I, like my arms want to run a mile. It's kind of the way it want, feels uh-huh. a little bit like, um, so I'll sit in the car and just like thumb away and just write for five minutes until I feel like, okay, I got enough of that out. Okay. Delete. <laughs> and yeah. then get rid of it. So, um, what you're doing while you're doing this practice is you're able to kind of um, view your own thoughts and your own self-talk and the things that are going around in your brain. You can view it with a scientific mindset, which allows you to take a step back from your own emotions rather than feel them so powerfully and so personally. You can take a step back and go, right before you're deleting it, you can take a step back and go, wow, it's so interesting that I responded in these ways after this other thing happened or after I, you know, um, let's say I was writing about, you know, what came out of mind in stream of conscious was I was writing out a grocery list and all of a sudden what popped in was the fact that we, you know, we've refinanced the house and I'm really stressed about all that kind of stuff. And, and you start to notice like, oh, well, of course, house management and managing my household and my family, of course that brings up these other sticky subjects. And so you're able to kind of view your thoughts for what they are, which is like symptoms of who you are, right? right. And and the symptoms are not you. I love this. I mean, when I talk to my clients about, I do a little bit of life coaching around alcohol addiction and I like their first 30 day assignment is to do just that. I just never told them to throw it away. And I think that might be a huge key because you don't really want anyone to find your recovery notes because they're really dark and evil. Yeah. And, and I, the third section of my book then is all about this. There's like five characteristics of creative expression and how to practice anything, basically. Um, and one of those is fluency. So for me, that's writing. For someone else, that might be movement, body movement. Um, for someone else, that might mean talking out loud. And in that case, you could do a voice file. Mm-hmm. Like you could just sit in the car and just talk out loud to yourself. <laughs> Although, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Emily Ann, I know you've got to run. So thank you so very much for your time. I'll post up a link to your book, uh, Bare Naked Bravery. And um, I learned a lot. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Meredith. This is so fun.